Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In case you haven't heard, I am going to be doing a live podcast recording with Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum, for the first Unchained Live, sponsored by Quantstamp. It will be in New York City on the evening of March 20th at Columbia Journalism School's Joseph D. Jamail Lecture Hall. We'll be discussing Ethereum 2.0, Polkadot, governance, and so much more. We'll have food, giveaways, and audience members will have a chance to ask questions. If you missed your chance to buy tickets, check out the live stream, which will be available on the Unchained Podcast Facebook page at facebook.com slash Unchained Podcast. The discussion starts at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're listening to this episode after the live stream has happened, you can watch the video post-event at the same link, facebook.com slash Unchained Podcast. I look forward to meeting attendees and seeing participation from our live stream audience. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. My guest today is Amin Soleimani, CEO of SpankChain. Welcome, Amin. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. You've been a sort of Ethereum gadfly recently, agitating for all kinds of change. But before we get into your gadfly activities, briefly tell us what your involvement with Ethereum has been to date. I got into Ethereum in 2016, towards the beginning, started learning about it, going to meetups and SF. Uh, I worked at Consensus for about a year uh, after that, and then I left uh, and started SpankChain, where I've been working until today. And so in recent months, some of the things that you've been doing are that you commissioned the KeoCon report, which had a number of criticisms about Ethereum's transition to version 2.0. You've been forming a DAO to facilitate and fund Ethereum development initiatives, and you've been trying to remove one of the moderators from our Ethereum. What problems do you see with Ethereum today that are motivating you to do all these things? For me, it's you know, for, for SpankChain, we depend on this system, this infrastructure, and we've invested a lot, both financially and uh, in learning about developing on it. Uh, and I want to see it succeed, and I want to see it grow, and I want to see it remain competitive. And so for me, what is motivating all of this is a desire to see things happen faster and to prepare us for the sort of maybe cultural shifts that we might need to go through as a community in order to be able to do that. Uh, so the State of ETH 2.0 report, you know, I hadn't been paying much attention to ETH 2.0 development, but then once the specs started coming out and we were able to learn more about it, I thought, you know, let's look into this and try and find out more and see where we can contribute. And so we didn't know where to start. 
And so the ETH 2.0 report was just the start in that direction. What were the problems that the report identified? Yeah, so we talked about a little bit of uh, lack of coordination happening on the engineering side. So like the spec is being developed by an elite team of researchers. It's Vitalik, Shaway, Justin Drake, and Danny Ryan. And Danny Ryan's been acting as a sort of liaison between the researchers and the rest of the engineers. But there's a sort of gap in the uh, engineering management because there's a lot more that goes into building a client than just uh, the spec of you know that comes out of the research. And no one is really owning that part of it. And Danny wasn't even really, even though he was sort of unofficially the lead, uh, he hadn't been widely acknowledged as the lead uh, with both the responsibility and power that uh, a position like that comes with. And so what our report pointed out was that, you know, maybe it asked the open question, like maybe he should be in charge and maybe we should be coordinating a little bit better uh, in order to move things faster. We've sort of gotten into this decentralized everything ethos and the people who are building rival chains are quite centralized in their development, even though the output of their effort is a decentralized uh, system. And so maybe it's time to make some compromises to uh, centralize more of our development in order to accelerate to their pace. Yeah. And also from some of what was described in the report, it seemed like there was a lot of redundancy, uh, like duplicate work or um, things having to be redone by people or work wasted because of poor communication, things like that. So then you know, that those were the problems you identified in the report. But in, now we're going to switch to talking about Moloch Dow. What are the problems you're trying to solve with Moloch Dow? And are those different from the ones identified in the report or the same? We want to help pick up the pace on ETH2 development. And so that means uh, trying to make, you know, submit proposals to the DAO that will fund efforts that might have otherwise gone unfunded or to uh, provide additional funding for efforts that we collectively believe in. So the first one is actually I submitted uh, just recently, and it's to pay Keocan back uh, for, for the report that we commissioned. Um, and so that'll get voted on over the next week, and then it'll be funded subsequently the week after that. How does Malik Dow work? Yeah, uh, we tried to build the simplest possible Dow that would be able to coordinate a group of people and their capital in order uh, to allow them to vote on how that money is spent, but try to be as secure as possible. And to do that, uh, we wanted to emphasize simplicity of the system. So the way it works is that you can, there's only a couple ways of interacting with it. Uh, you can submit a proposal, you can vote on a proposal, you can uh, process a proposal once it's done, and you can also then exit. So when you submit a proposal, uh, you specify the amount of Ether that you'd like to contribute. Right now, the Guild Bank only holds Ether. And then you also request a number of shares. And the shares uh, will be newly minted if that proposal passes. So once you submit a proposal, which can either be for funding, if you want a grant, you just don't offer any Ether as tribute. Um, and if you want to you know, provide capital, then you do offer Ether's tribute. 
Once the proposal is submitted, it goes into a voting period, which lasts seven days. It's a no quorum, simple majority vote. Uh, so even if there's just one yes vote, that's enough to carry the day. And then once the seven-day voting period is done, there's a seven-day grace period. And so during the grace period, anybody who did not vote yes, uh, if they voted no or didn't vote, let's say they say, you know, they think they don't want to spend their money on this proposal, they can actually rage quit. And what that'll do is they take any number of shares that they have and they can liquidate them and get their proportional share of Ether from the Guild Bank. And they can do this for up to all of their shares. Uh, so it, it's completely voluntary. And then at the end of the grace period, once a proposal is processed, those shares are minted and everybody who is you know, remaining in the guild is diluted in order to pay for it. And so it creates a system where we can pool our money and then proportionally dilute ourselves, where we also have votes relative to how much money we put in or have earned by you know through this proposal process if we're uh, getting grants for contributing our our labor to the guild and so that's how it works in a nutshell and there's there's a couple other things in terms of the game theory but that's the overview and who can join so you have to only members can submit uh proposals so not everybody can just you know submit a proposal if they want but if the a member submits a proposal for you and then you are voted in then you're in and what do you hope to accomplish? Like you mentioned that first project, which is just to pay for this report that was already commissioned. But I, that seems like a very small, you know, kind of uh, thing to do. So kind of big picture, what are you hoping comes out of Molodow? Yeah, so this is like the zero to one, right? So it doesn't look very significant, but it's mostly intended to prove that the system works. I think over the next couple months, we'll see a couple more proposals go out, you know, sort of in the same low thousands range, uh, because right now we just sort of completed the founding, which has 22 members that committed 100 Ether each. So there's 2,200 Ether, about 275 plus thousand dollars going into this. That's the starting position. I think this could end up with, you know, several millions or tens of millions uh, or possibly even more dollars. Maybe not this version of the contracts, but something like this in general, because the the ultimate sort of vision for this is, well, it, it comes from the realization that Ethereum does not have inflation funding currently. Uh, and so that means all of the funding for development has to come on a voluntary basis from people who already have Ether, which means making it easier for people to pool their Ether and spend it on the things that they want is really important. And so we want to do that. We have sort of two, you know, missions here. One is like do useful things. And then the other is show people that, you know, we can do useful things in order to scale up how much useful things we can do. And so I could see this paying, you know, salaries or bonuses from teams. I could see it commissioning uh, contract work to pay for development tooling uh, as, you know, E3.0 gets closer I could see it funding 1.x efforts. I could see it funding layer two stuff like state channels and plasma, trying to focus more on where others are focusing less on. Let's just, because, you know, you described how it works uh, kind of quickly. Let's just unpack it a little bit. So essentially there's five uh, proposals that can be submitted per day. Each proposal then has seven days during which the members can vote up or down on it. And after it's 
voted on, then there's a seven-day grace period during which members who, I guess, vehemently disagree with any particular proposal can rage quit, meaning they can exit uh, Malik Dow, or or they can actually, I guess, rage quit just a portion of their shares if if they you know just don't want all of their money going to fund that project or what or whatever it is. And then after that, the funding goes to you know wh- wherever it's supposed to go. Um, but then at that point, wait, is there any way? Because like so, I guess in a foundation, normally when they make a grant, then they have these different reporting requirements to ensure that the goals are met. Do you have any function like that with Malik Dow? Nope, we don't have a function like that. Somebody could run away with the money. There's there's ways of addressing this though. For example, when typical grant bodies make these grants, like uh, it, it tends to be for very high amounts. The the coordination cost is really high, so they only want to do it every you know every few months or maybe even like over the course of a couple of years. But in this one, if you, if there is, if there's a risk that the person you're giving a grant to might not deliver, then what you can do instead is offer like smaller incremental grants and have one be every month, for example. And so that way, you know, if at any point somebody runs away with the money, then it's only for a month's worth of money. Uh, and I think in the future we'll probably have like, managers for specific types of tasks that are more trusted members of the guild itself that then you know can even allocate and potentially withdraw the rest of the funds if they see that you know there's some sort of foul play and it also seems like what you were describing where you could kind of meet out the grants they could even be performance based like you know, once you hit this milestone, then we could give you more money, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I wanted to unpack a little bit more was the rage quit function. So let's say that I'm a member and I generally tend to vote yes. And I generally really like everything the guild is doing, but there's just one proposal that I really, really hate and it's been voted in. If I rage quit all my shares, then I run the risk of the members not voting me back in. But then what if I decide, okay, so I'm going to rage quit all of my shares except for one. Then after that point, how easy is it to increase my shares after that proposal has been adopted and is paid for? Like if I, you know, if I want to kind of increase my holdings again. Uh, I think the answer is I don't know because uh, nobody's ever tried it yet. I mean, if you rage quit all but one of your shares, that means as far as the DAO is concerned, you're still a member, which means you can still submit proposals and vote on them. Uh, so it means it's, it's slightly easier than if you would have to you know, exit completely and then ask somebody else to submit a proposal for you to get back in. But you're still going to have to convince all of the other members that they should let you back in, given that you just sort of turned your back on you know, them and the proposal that they just accepted, even though they tend to you know, maybe uh, vote on the you know, even if they might not agree with something that you've put forth uh, and, and voted yes on, they've still been on the hook for paying for it. So I think I think it'll be difficult, and I think it might end up that you'd probably have to pay more than you tried to dodge in order to get back in. It seems like it might be the equilibrium point. And then there's two ways of getting shares. One is to uh, just essentially purchase them, you know, by, by submitting ether, uh, to get a share. But then what about if you submit work instead of money, how does it determine how many shares you get? 
So whoever submits a proposal determines the number of shares that are being requested at the time. So it's up to you to come up with a proposal that you think that the members will approve of and then get it voted in. So there's some amount of coordination that needs to go on off chain where you, you know, you have some price that you you figure out and then determine and then put it down. Um, Because if, if it's, you know, if you're submitting something for, you know, you want a grant and it's too high, maybe people vote no. And if it's maybe if it's too low, then you might get it, but you're unhappy with it. Uh, So, you, you know, the same types of negotiations need to happen where somebody in the guild who acts as your champion, they might, you know, talk to people, say, Hey, will you vote yes on this? If it is, you know, $10,000 and they'll be like, no, that's too high. I'll, I'll vote yes if it's eight. Right. And so then, uh, you'll determine what you think you can get past and then you'll submit that proposal. Uh, and then once you, if it does get passed and you receive the, uh, shares, the newly minted shares, and it's sort of on you to decide if you need that liquidity immediately. Um, because if you don't, then you can continue to stay in the guild and then vote on new proposals that come out, though you will also be diluted proportionally uh, from the amount that you got in a grant. Um, but you could also you know, pick any point on that spectrum. You could rage quit you know, 70% or 80% uh, and keep some in or you know, all but one share in order to make it so that you don't have to rely on somebody else to submit future proposals for your grants. Okay. That's, that's actually really interesting. Cause then it's sort of like you can either be paid in actual money or in uh, power to then uh, allocate more funds. So one other thing that I wanted to ask about is, so right now the price of a share is one ETH. Will that value remain constant or will the value of shares rise and fall? So that's entirely up to the members. I think that it's likely going to stay there for a while. I think that it could go up over time. Uh, if members think that there should be you know, a, a coordination cost paid by the person who's trying to join because everybody else needs to spend some of their time and energy voting them in. And just additionally, that you know every new member presents some sort of risk to the organization because uh, somebody could spam the proposal queue, for example, uh, and then make it so that the existing members have to adapt. And because there's no upgrade mechanism uh, and there's no way of kicking anybody out, at least you know in this version of the contract, what we would have to do is uh, everybody rage quits and then we deploy a new contract and then everybody moves to that one. Uh, that's the upgrade mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about it that has echoes of the DAO from 2016 and then the ensuing um, Ethereum hard fork, but like this would be much cleaner and therefore, and and it's like essentially like a planned function. So, <laughs> um, yeah. One the, other. Go ahead. Oh, uh-huh. uh, I was just going to say there's similarities between like this kind of rage quitting and like hard fork governance where like, when you have something like Ethereum, where the only governance system there is, uh, is like, you know, you hard fork, and then every single node on that network needs to decide to move over to the new fork at the same time. And that's how the network stays together. And and rage quitting in this is, is sort of the same. It's like, we can upgrade, and then you can choose whether or not at that time you'd like to continue being a part of this or not. Um, maybe future versions of the contract will have upgrade mechanisms built in. We left it out in the first version because you know we wanted it to be maximally simple and it wasn't necessary, at least at this time. 
but you know, I kind of like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I imagine also, um, and this is actually a question I had for you for later, but we can talk about it now. I just imagine in a way, part of the reason you did that was because as we know from the previous DAO, these things can be very unpredictable and can go south very, very quickly. (laughs) So what lessons did you learn from the DAO from 2016? Yeah, we are heavily inspired by the DAO of 2016. Uh, the DAO is actually my first week at Consensus. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. Uh, Joe walks in on a Friday that the DAO hack happened and like buys everyone tacos and beer, and we're just sort of hanging out. And it's like the calm before the storm. And then the next month, like the you know all hell breaks loose, and like people start getting confused. And there's a hard fork, and there's a soft fork, and like you know all, all this stuff is going on. Uh, and then eventually, you know, we we hard fork and move on. Uh, this all happened like in a month. It was, it was crazy time. Yes, um, yes. But it happened because, you know, not only was the DAO hacked and, and that was terrible, but like the, the game theory of the DAO was, was quite flawed. Uh, and this was pointed out in detail by Eamon Gunsire, a professor at Cornell, uh, among with many of his, his fellow researchers. Uh, and they prepared this post called the moratorium, a call for a moratorium on the DAO. And it had two major like suggestions. Uh, and the first one was that you have uh, post-vote grace periods so that uh, people have a chance to leave after uh, a vote takes place. And then the second one was instant withdrawals uh, so that at any time you can leave with the amount of money that you ha- have a claim on. Uh, and we implemented both of those as sort of the guiding principles of this, right? Uh, we, we knew that we wanted security, but we also didn't want to uh, lock people in. Like when you're trying to leave the original DAO, there was an attack that somebody could do. I think it was called the stalker attack. And basically you create this child DAO uh, for yourself. But when you create that child DAO and then you you can withdraw from that uh, and the child DAO has like your proportional share of, you know, the original DAO tokens and the ether and stuff. Well, somebody could follow you into your child DAO and they could keep doing that forever. Uh, there's, and there's potentially no way to get rid of them. And this is exactly what happened. So there, there was further complications beyond just the hack. And we wanted to make sure we learned as much as we could. Yeah. So just going back to the, the shares, one other thing, um, or not the shares, but just how, how the Molag DAO works. You mentioned earlier that right now the guild only accepts Ether, but I read that you guys do plan to allow the guild to accept other tokens. So how would that work in the future, like, would you even accept tokens that at least you or, or at least some people in the community perceive to be competitive to ETH? Like, for instance, I, I saw some tweets from you recently where you seem to view Polkadot maybe as a competitor to Ethereum. So would you allow dots to be used in the guild bank? I mean, it depends on what these, what whatever everyone decides, right? Uh, it's a decentralized system. The decisions are made by vote. If we all pool a bunch of Ether and you know, upgrade, like, you know, then sometime later we decide, hey, we're going to upgrade to a new contract. Uh, it's going to also allow your C20s. And then we, we all rage quit, we move all our ETH to this new contract, right? Uh, and then people start submitting proposals, but instead of Ether offered as tribute, they offer dots or atoms or what have you. Then it's on everybody to decide at that point. Uh, and it's actually on an individual uh, proposal basis if we keep most of, of the current system the same. 
like you know another another way of doing it would be to whitelist uh, those those tokens and then decide you know what what can be accepted in general and then do that as a one time decision. But you could see this transcending Ethereum. Uh, that's one way this might play out. Uh, it might be that this type of organizing structure is effective enough that uh, you know and and maybe there are positive sum ways of working with other uh, you know blockchains that make it worth it to allow them to join huh that's really interesting but I guess if I imagine how that would play out I feel like it would be very strange to have different blockchains managed by the same organization like I would imagine there would be just you know other Moloch DAOs or however you want it as other DAOs for other blockchains. But anyway, we're getting like super theoretical. I mean, this is like, we don't even know if this is going to work. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's way more likely that people will fork it. And like, I want to, I think I'm going to put a giant, like a title on this that says steal this code uh, <laughs> because I really want to see more experimentation. Um, I don't think that everything is going to be in this DAO you know, this instance of the the DAO, like this specific contract, I think people are going to run with it and make their own DAOs for their own types of, you know, coordination that they want to see. And we'll all learn a lot from each other. And over time, maybe these things will grow in ways that they're compatible. And uh, one other thing that I was wondering about the shares, and this is just kind of a small technical question, but I noticed that you built the shares so they're not transferable. So out of curiosity, how does that work on the back end? It's just the number on the contract. It's not a ERC twenty token. Uh, oh, so, so they don't get a token. Well, no, but they they have to have something like in a wallet somewhere, right? Well, it's saved by your key. So when you join, you have a key, and the key can never change. Uh, that's your member address. And when you the member address is the only thing that can rage quit. But the DAO also has a mini permission system built in, so you can have a delegate key, and the delegate key can be the same as your member address. Uh, or it could be a different key. And that allows you to have, you know, maybe like a multi-sig as your member key and then like your MetaMask as your delegate key. And the delegate key can do two things. It can vote and it can uh, submit proposals. So you you can have the this sort of separation where like, you know, one key doesn't necessarily have to have a lot of money. It can be a little less secure because it can't withdraw the funds that you've deposited into the DAO. Um, but the other key could also you know be like hold storage that you use to withdraw the money if you need to or change the other key if it gets compromised okay okay so essentially like there's a way where you can use or exercise your shares on different devices is that what you're saying but yeah. not okay okay but you can't sell them um one other thing is i was just wondering with the Moloch DAO, how do you mitigate the influence of whales because couldn't this just sort of be dominated by large bag holders if we vote them in and so that's sort of the beauty of it is that we have to accept that uh you know ha having a whale join would be really great right because it would mean for everything else that we wanted to do uh you know somebody else is picking up a lot of the bill uh that said the whale would also be able to influence votes uh and so if you know somebody comes in and and just you know throwing an example out there like exceeds 50 percent of the total shares and we vote yes to allow them in then they have complete control over all the votes however all of us can leave at any time so the second that they vote on something that we don't agree with that we don't want our money spent towards like any individual member can can leave 
so I think having this be completely voluntary, allowing the option to leave at any time, gets around a lot of the game theoretic uh, problems with pooling capital, especially for something like Grantstown in the first place. The thing that everybody's most concerned about uh, when you ask them to put money in something like this is, will I get bullied by the larger voters in the system? Is there a way for them to get me to use their power to, to, to fund something that to, I, I don't agree with? And if you can leave at any time, the answer to that's no. And it, it then also makes it so that the you know people who might otherwise be able to control this thing, they don't even have an incentive to try and do the types of things that would get you to leave because they know you can. But if you can't leave, then they do. See what I mean? I do. I do. But I, it's just one of those things where until we see how it plays out in the wild, I, I, I am not fully confident it's going to work. So We'll I'm, have to <laughs> yeah, I'm also not fully confident it'll work. I treat this as an experiment and I tried to put, you know, as many safeguards in place, but I think that, you know, the, the most likely failure case is like, uh, you know, it gets spammed or like some, you know, somehow fizzles out. But I think that no matter what, there's a lot to be learned from this because ultimately like Ethereum is a coordination platform. And what we should expect is like once we have these coordination platforms, like as the cost of coordination itself drops, the like the the most disruptive opportunities are the ones that require unprecedented levels of coordination, uh, and so that's what I'm like most excited for about Ethereum in terms of its impact in the world. And I see this as you know one high stakes experiment that we can run to like further Ethereum itself and also further our ability to coordinate on top of it. We're going to continue discussing a few aspects of Molotow, as well as the importance of the value of Ether after the break. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New FAFT and EU cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful cipher trace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy. Back to my conversation with Amin Soleimani of Malik Dow. Earlier, you mentioned inflation funding, and that is something that a few other blockchains have. For instance, Zcash, I think 20% of the block rewards goes towards development. Is that something that you think should happen on Ethereum? And if so, is there any mechanism by which MolecDAO could make that happen? So my answer is yes, but. I, I do think it should happen, but I don't think it should happen right now. Part of the reason is that as soon as you start suggesting inflation funding, everybody's head's uh, who's listening is going to go, well, who's going to manage the money? You know, like this is a conflict of interest scenario. Like how are we going to decide who, how to, who gets the money and like who actually, you know, is doing the most important things for Ethereum. Right. And <laughs> so like without having a way to address that question, uh, it's dead in the water. Um, and so for me, something like the Moloch Dow is, is also important because it gives us like the ability to practice, uh, we haven't tried, you know, except for the DAO, uh, really organizing around our common interests and around um, furthering Ethereum 
uh, in this way. And that's something that would be required, right? If, if inflation is being allocated, it's being allocated to somebody, some organization, some set of decision makers that have the trust of the community and are expected to then, you know, be accountable to the community and also use the money properly to, to pursue the interests of Ethereum. And so like if we, you know, we, we basically need to prove that DAOs work first. And Moloch is absolutely in its current form not designed to handle inflation funding because, you know, if, if a giant pool of capital just sat inside the guild bank, uh, any of the members could just rage quit and take their share of it. Uh, so you, you don't really want <laughs> uh, that. That's not really what I had in mind when I designed this. But there is actually an EIP that was authored by Kevin Awaki of Gitcoin uh, about uh, inflation funding and I'm contributing to that, and we're trying to think about ways that we could evolve the mechanisms that Moloch uses to be more suitable for something like that. And actually, just one question about the inflation funding. Obviously, Bitcoin is an example of a blockchain that has been successful in incentivizing developers to continue to work on its development, despite the fact that they do not get paid for their work. Why do you think that is? So I think Ethereum needs to evolve more than Bitcoin does. I think the point of Bitcoin is kind of that it stays the same. There's not there's not a whole lot to do. Maybe, maybe I'm missing something or being naive. Like I think the Lightning Network stuff is really interesting. And and it's it, it ends up still being, you know, people that made their money on Bitcoin that have large Bitcoin holdings that end up funding this stuff, right? Or or it's like very profitable businesses that end up building on it. So but like compared to Ethereum, especially if Ethereum's you know building smart contracts and competing with all of the other up and coming smart contract platforms out there, like uh, it's it has a lot to do with developer experience. Um, like there's a reason that I'm building on Ethereum and not Bitcoin, and it's because like I can't write something like the Moloch DAO in Bitcoin where I can write it in Solidity in 400 lines, and so the the time that it takes me, the the effort that is required to develop something like that, that is secure, that is, you know, work, works as intended, matters. And you can put a price on that. And if that price goes down a lot for rival smart contract platforms, then it's going to make more and more sense to build on those instead of Ethereum. Now, there's a whole host of other factors, right? The security of the chain, the network effects, open source libraries, stuff like that. But uh, we we need to compete on basically all of those uh, axes, um, and and that takes a lot of development effort. Uh, like another way of thinking about this is like Bitcoin doesn't have a roadmap, right? Like it's just supposed to do its thing. Whereas Ethereum has a roadmap. There's there's proof of stake and beacon chains and ETH, you know, one X stuff, and and there's there's a, even a roadmap beyond the the ETH two right? There's an ETH three and maybe an ETH four. Um, on the horizon. And so how are we going to pay for all this? Like either ETH moons or we figure out a way to pool our money uh, or we use inflation to do it. Those are like the only three options that I can see. Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting comparisons to be made, I guess, because uh, so earlier when you were talking about how it's harder to, to program on Bitcoin for that reason, it's even more remarkable that uh, there has been continued development on it without any inflation funding. But yeah, I don't know if I, fl- I mean, I guess, so in, cer- in a certain respect, I do see uh, what you mean about the Ethereum roadmap. Like, 
maybe some of what Ethereum is trying to accomplish is just bigger in scope. Um, but obviously, Bitcoin development does continue. And there is a lot of work being done on layer two, that kind of thing. So, you know, it's not it's not really like an apples to apples comparison, of course. Um, but it is kind of like an interesting uh, counterpoint. One other thing I wanted to ask about was how does MolecDAO work with the Ethereum Foundation? Are the two completely separate? Or are there instances in which both of you guys might be working on the same or funding the same thing or short answer is I don't really know yet. I've gotten closer to some of the members of the foundation. Uh, thus far, nobody from the foundation has, uh, I think there's one member of the foundation that's also that's joined the DAO, but, uh, you know, none of the sort of uh, executives or like Vitalik or, you know, sort of, sort of the, um, higher up people. Um, and, and I think, uh, they want to have that separation exist. Maybe they'll join something like this in the future. Maybe they'll call it something else uh, to be more palatable. But I think that ultimately they're going to be complementary. So Mala could fund things that the EF either isn't paying attention to, or we could both fund some of the same people in the sense that like Mala could give somebody a grant and they could do a follow-on or they could give people grants and we could give them bonuses. Right. Uh, and I don't think that this is going to be seen as like stepping on their toes, for example, uh, because I think that as, as far as the EF is concerned, like I don't think they want to exist forever. Uh, I think they've actually been pretty clear about this, that like they want the space to grow and they want the EF to remain roughly the same size or maybe shrink. Uh, and so over time it's going to become more and more of, you know, the, the ecosystem's responsibility to take care of itself, right? If you look at the beginning of Ethereum, most of the people who are working on the protocol, who are working on the tooling and so forth, like they were paid by the foundation. And that's very much no longer the case. So we're already on this trajectory where the foundation is becoming less and less relevant. Uh, and so Malik Dao is just one other effort in that direction, not, not to make them irrelevant, but to prepare you know, the rest of the ecosystem to become self-reliant. And you mentioned uh, that there are 22 members so far. Who are some of them? Uh, yeah, so it's it's a pretty broad group. It's uh, developers in the space as well as some executives. Um, so, for example, uh, it's myself, Cassandra, who used to run the ECF, um, Sam Cassat. Cassandra Shi. Cassandra Shi, yeah. Um, uh, Sam Cassat, uh, who's the... Uh, Chief Strategy Officer at Consensus. There's a, a developer on ETH2 named uh, Joseph DeLong. There's James Young, who was uh, working closely with me at SpankChain and AdChain before that. Uh, Arjun Bhutani, who is the CEO of Connext. Martin Koppelman and Stefan George, the CEO and CTO of Gnosis. Joe Ergo from District Zero X. Mark D'Agostino from Grid Plus. A couple early ETH buyers. Griff Green. I think he, you know, he has PTS DAO because he built the original DAO. His comments in, in our group are hilarious. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I like that PTS DAO. <laughs> yep. Uh, so, so yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good group. Um, I'm excited because partly because of, like the coordination is, you know, the sort of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts type of thing. Like we have some of the most you know, invested in the space in terms of, you know, personally, their their companies, their reputations, uh, their, you know, holdings, uh, but also those who have been around the long time, like a very long time and really want to, you know, don't plan on going anywhere and, and really want to see this grow and, and take Ethereum to the next level. 
So let's now switch to talking about the value of ether. You have this, I think, somewhat maybe uncommon philosophy that the value of ether is important and that the chain should try to maximize its value. Why do you think the price of ETH matters long term? It's absolutely nuts that this is an uncommon view, uh, first of all. Uh, second of all, the price of ETH matters, like first and foremost, because of the security of the network. If ETH is worth more, the network is harder to attack. Like, full stop. Like, that's the point uh, of all of this. Like, if we build a network worth $1, then to attack it, somebody doesn't need to spend very much money, right? The, the more it costs to purchase, you know, enough uh, Ether to meaningfully disrupt the system, the more secure it is for everybody building on top of it. And so how do you think Ethereum should try to, should try to create that value? I see Ethereum as like this, you know, I, I see like smart contract platforms in general as the sort of like internet of blockchains, right? And and everybody, maybe even Bitcoin, we're, we're basically all competing on like the amount of settlement value that goes through the chain. Uh, so when, when you stake in a proof of uh, stake system, you get rewards from the transaction fees and from the uh, inflation rewards. And what you're trying to optimize for is that you want the the most value to be settled on your chain. And so maybe that means directly on your chain. Like if I trade with somebody on Uniswap, right? If I'm trading as a reserve pool, if I'm trading on 0x, and these transactions are actually happening from you know one Ethereum account to another, uh, that's settlement on chain. But it could also be that you know I run a plasma chain totally off chain, and some people from Ethereum have transferred their value into that uh, plasma chain, and that plasma chain is still secured by Ethereum in the sense that like we can exit onto Ethereum and withdraw our funds at any time. Well, then every time you know that plasma chain checkpoints its hash onto Ethereum, that transaction is is matters. That is uh, more value that is being settled somewhat indirectly, but uh, still on Ethereum, and so. You, you you imagine this network and if you're in like the greatest number of shortest paths of value transfer, right? If your chain is also in between like many chains uh, where people's money are on some chain and they want to transfer to another chain, that's how you accrue value. That's how you accrue value in the sort of like, you know, discounted cash flow uh, analysis, right? The other way you accrue value is you inspire people who believe in your money. Right. Ethereum can accrue a monetary premium if everybody believes in Ethereum's future and does not want to sell no matter what. Right. That's that's another way of going about it. And so I think these these two things are, are both really important. Um, one of them has has a lot more to do with community philosophy uh, and the other has a lot more to do with uh, like building interoperability into Ethereum, building, you know, effective layer two systems to bring you know, plasma chains that accrue a lot of value themselves uh, to to connect to Ethereum and and use its security, and some of it comes from you know the network effects around building on Ethereum in general and maintaining Ethereum as the most secure chain because you know everybody sort of wants to build on the most secure chain, which has a you know nice feedback loop. So I'm going to put words in your mouth just for a second, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. But if I'm going to pull together, kind of like all the stuff that you've been doing trying to make these changes happen on Ethereum and your philosophy about the value of Ether. In a way, it almost seems to me like the reason why you want to help change happen more quickly on Ethereum or facilitate it is because you view Ethereum's path to success as uh, essentially like 
getting as much activity on Ethereum or related to Ethereum as possible. And that's why the value of Ether is important because that will be a reflection of that activity. Is that is that kind of a way of tying those two things together? Uh, yeah, that's that's this is what's important for the long term value accrual uh, to to Ethereum. So now I want to ask you about something related. As you know, in recent weeks, Ethereum core developer Afri, actually I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Shodan, uh, was driven from the project after he tweeted. Polkadot delivers what serenity ought to be. Change my mind. Were you on the side of people who thought Afri should be kicked out of Ethereum or on the side of people who thought he should have stayed? I wasn't really paying attention, uh, to be honest. Um, I, I thought that he was looking for a reaction and he got one. Uh, I don't think it's what he expected. I think he made really important contributions to the space. Like he was you know, delivering code for parity the client, uh, he was building the Gorley testnet. He was acting as the release manager. Like these things are all important, way more important than like any idiot on Reddit's voice. So no, I, I wouldn't want to have seen him kicked out and he wasn't kicked out. Like he could have told all of the angry Redditors to like go f- themselves, uh, and stayed on. Uh, but he decided instead to quit. Uh, I, I don't know what he's doing now. I don't know if he wants to come back, but, uh, it's, it's, it is harder to come back after you sort of declare that you're quitting something. And, you know, I, I also, I'm not happy with whoever it is in the community that's like being super aggro. Uh, like the, the stuff about calling for, you know, physical violence is, is never appropriate. And, and that stuff should be moderated. But I also don't think that it makes sense to like look at those comments made by, you know, anonymous people on Reddit and like have that reflect the, the whole community. I think that's a bit unfair as well. So, and what's your take on like a similar situation where I guess some people have been trying to ostracize the Aragon after they announced that they planned to dis- to deploy their smart contracts on Polkadot? What's your opinion on that? I knew about that a long time before they, you know, publicly said anything about it. But I don't. I mean, if you if you get the goodwill of the community by saying that you're going to build on Ethereum and contribute to the chain, then you should also expect that like, if you stop, uh, <laughs> you know, some of that goodwill might go away. Um, I, I don't necessarily think like ostracizing is, is the best strategy there. I think we, we still want to be welcoming, but we should take a hard look at ourselves uh, and try to figure out like, you know, w- what is the technical reason that's motivating this? And like, can we address that? Like, is it that they prefer, you know, polka dot people, um, in which case, you know, there's sort of nothing to be done. Uh, if it, if, is it that they prefer to build on substrate? Is it that they prefer to operate their own layer one? Oh, well, in that case, great. Like, let's figure out how to provide them the tools for doing that on Ethereum too. Um, if we, you know, have, have the wherewithal and, and, and the time to, to do that, then like, great. And if not, then, you know, maybe it's like a, Hey, we're still friends, but like we get that you're either hedging or like committing to move on. And, that's you know that's how it is. Um, I don't think they they should be ostracized. I think they've done a huge amount of work uh, in the space already, and I think that should speak for itself. So, like, I know you've been calling for the removal of one of the R Ethereum moderators, and from your tweets about that, I actually would have thought that maybe you would have agreed that Offrey should be kicked out, or that um, you know people. 
I mean, I guess you did kind of say you understood why uh, some people might be trying to ostracize Aragon. So, like, how do you kind of square the your position about the our Ethereum moderator, uh, you know, on the Ethereum subreddit with it sounds like you have a more moderate tone about some of the others that are trying to experiment on other chains. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a guy named Ryan Zur. He is a director of Polkadot and, and the Web3 Foundation. I don't know exactly the organizations that, you know, between who's Polkadot, who's Web3, but you know, he's been working with them for, I don't know, three months, six months, something like that, uh, maybe longer. I don't think it makes sense to have competitors like people who have, you know, like started to focus far more on competitors being moderators of the subreddit. Uh, That was the only point I was making. I don't fault Ryan for doing what's in his best interest. Uh, I think that it makes a lot of sense for him uh, to basically leverage the goodwill that he's already earned in the community as much as he can in order to you know, make friends and uh, attract people to to Polkadot. But I also don't think that it makes sense for us, you know, who are still focused on Ethereum to elevate his voice in giving him this, you know, position of status that the the moderator position is. We had a discussion about whether or not that is the case. um, and And it seemed that that was like one of the biggest disconnects between the community and the moderators is that the moderators didn't see themselves as, you know, getting any sort of points for doing this, they saw it as a chore, some task, you know, an administrative function, something wrote. Whereas in the community, like we look to these people for guidance for, uh, you know, to be to be examples of, you know, how we should act, uh, how we should discuss things. And when Ryan continues to bring up like fund recovery and then calls everybody who disagrees with him a bunch of trolls and like completely ignores the you know points i was making about him you know being sort of duplicitous in how he approached the ethereum community publicly and how he did it you know privately when he was trying to sell me dots his reaction was like to deny it and try to gaslight me and pretend like it never happened and that i was making it up and so yeah and just for the record (laughs) um he views your conversation as you trying to lure him into certain positions and then um you know telling the story differently from how it happened so you know i i think there's two sides and so it's just kind of funny that i think both of you view the other person as having you're both accusing each other of doing things and yet uh, each of you think that that person has done that to you so (laughs) yeah that's, that's normally how this goes Hey listeners, this is Laura jumping in here after we recorded. I reached out to Ryan Zur to get his response to these allegations and he said about recovery of frozen funds, that he never called those who oppose it trolls, that he respects their position but doesn't feel that the issue has been closed, and that he's allowed to support fund recovery. He also pointed me to a Medium post from July 2018 that lays out his position, in which he makes several points, but one is, quote, Dogma surrounding immutability severely disincentivizes innovators from taking otherwise reasonable risks to build the technology of the future. I've linked to this post in the show notes. As for the description of the phone call, Ryan wrote via email, quote, 
In the short call that I had with Amin, which was my only interaction with him, he was clearly trying to entrap me the entire time. He lamented his scalability issues and asked directly how I think Polkadot could be a better option for him than Ethereum and led the conversation in this direction. Ryan then goes on to say that he views Polkadot as experimental, but that it has some very interesting design features, quote, such as the ability to plug and play your consensus and security model and build your own chain specifically for your users slash use case. Ryan doesn't believe that everyone should abandon Ethereum, but that it is prudent for developers to understand Polkadot and explore it. And he views the two projects as more synergistic than competitive. He says, quote, just because a team or dev experiments with Polkadot does not make them disloyal to Ethereum and they should not be ostracized. Again, that is a maximalist view and unhealthy as it leads to the online bullying that I and others are suffering from due to our desire to experiment. Now, back to the show. Uh, I mean, long story short, uh, I think Taylor Monahan, CEO of my crypto, like really brought the community together because she took my request to have him removed, like, you know, and and then instead of acting on it, she did the far more reasonable thing, which was to try and create a policy uh, where everybody and and not not try to create a policy, but try to drive a community discussion about policy uh, that would be used to govern our Ethereum moderator privileges in the future so that she could do this in a scalable way and doesn't have to deal with it every two weeks when we all get our panties up in a bunch about getting some other mod removed, yes. right? <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. And I totally support it. And the one policy uh, request that I made was to have mods be at least primarily focused on Ethereum projects, uh, not competitors, which I specified would have uh, proactively removed Ryan when he started focusing on Polkadot with no sort of drama, right? It's like a, hey man, we can see that you're focused on something else now. Uh, we're going to remove you as mod. It's not really that important, but you know, anyway, but like, there you go. Have a nice day, right? But it wouldn't have removed Afri because he was still focused primarily on Ethereum, right? Even though he's working for Parity, which gets money from Polkadot, like Parity itself also got, you know, a $5 million grant from the EF. So he's like, you know, at least in some sense, getting paid by the EF. Uh, and, and working primarily on Ethereum things. So I don't think it would have proactively removed Afri. That policy would have you know, required him to leave or, or, or be asked to step down in the way that it would for Ryan. Now, when Afri said, I quit, I'm done with Ethereum, then maybe the mods would have removed him for inactivity. But it also wouldn't remove any of the other mods because they're all working on, you know, status or being paid by the EF, like Hudson and Alex Van de Sand on, on stuff, or like running my crypto, which is, you know, one of the the most widely used wallets in Ethereum today. Hi, listeners. Again, it's Laura jumping in with Ryan's response. He says, quote, the idea that someone has to be majority focused on Ethereum in order to be a mod is a means opinion, and I respect that even if I don't agree. If someone worked outside the space as their day job, does that mean they can't be a mod? Clearly not. Ryan then goes on to say that he's been a big Ethereum supporter since day one, that his largest crypto holding by a significant margin is ETH, that he was the sponsor of the Dow White Hat Group, that he's been a mod since 2016 and has faithfully executed his duties in that role, that he's invested in and directly helped dozens of Ethereum projects, including rewriting the original MakerDAO white paper with the team and advising it through its development, among other activities. Then he says, quote, The fact that I support other experiments in the space should not take away from the contributions I have made and will continue to make in Ethereum, nor do they preclude me from being a moderator of our Ethereum, as has been decided by the other mods. And uh, just to clarify what that means, 
there was an announcement on on our Ethereum that no current mods will be removed at this time and that they will remove moderators when and if they are not upholding their duty as a moderator. I'll also link to that in the show notes. Back to my conversation with Amin. For years, I've been interviewing various people who have said things to me about how they gravitated toward Ethereum after having unpleasant experiences with the Bitcoin community. And a lot of those people kind of like decried Bitcoin maximalism or any kind of maximalism. And obviously, we've seen over the years that Ethereum has been very welcoming to other projects. So, you know, for instance, Zcash and Eternity went to DevCon 4. But I feel like in recent weeks, we've seen a a sort of Ethereum maximalism emerge with the Offrey situation, people getting really mad about Aragon, deploying on Polkadot. So what do you think that is true? Do you agree with that? And um, if so, what do you think of that attitude? Do you think I'm an Ethereum maximalist? Well, actually, that's a question for you. Are you? <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm an Ethereum. I don't know if there's a good word for this. Maybe like preferentialist or something. Like <laughs> I, pre- I prefer it. Uh, I'm not like categorically for it. I don't think it's like the one you know chain to rule them all. I, I think it is in the lead. I think it could sustain its lead uh, indefinitely if we you know play the game right. Um, I I have. As also, it's it's a little bit different when you're an investor and when you're a developer, right? When you're like working on a project, like I only have time to invest in so many ecosystems, right? Like I can't learn EOS development and Tron development and Ethereum development and Polkadot development. Like I sort of have to pick, right? Uh, so like it doesn't really make sense to like talk to you know or like accuse devs of, of maximalism just because they like one chain over another or like they've invested. In. Like for me, it's like a, lar- a large part of this is just me trying to protect my investment, right? Not not just like the financial one, but like it would take a long time for me to like figure out another chain and how to build on it and make all new friends. And it's more convenient for me to contribute to the chain they're on. And I, as I specified in the thing, I think Polkadot's going to do really well, not have any anything to do with Ryan. I think maybe he's done a decent job of, business development, but mostly because of Gavin and his, you know, army of like fanatical open source contributors uh, that ship code every day. And so we purchased dots. Uh, I you know, was pretty transparent about that. I plan to maybe poke around and learn some rust and work in their ecosystem too. But like, I, I'm pretty conflicted, right? Like, when when you ask about this stuff, it's not it's not like just a question of like technology either. It's it's also a lot about community. Uh, the Ethereum community has like thus far embraced Spankchain, right? They give us opportunities to talk at their conferences, and and everybody has sort of come come around to our mission being one that they support, and that's really important for me. That's really important for the community of adult performers that they see that were accepted and that this is actually different than how they, you know, are used to being interacted with by the mainstream uh, culture, right? Ethereum is different because it is, is welcoming. And that is part of why it makes me want to protect it. And part of why uh, it makes me want to, you know, hesitant to like go to other communities where maybe they don't feel that way. See what I mean? So I, I feel like you're, you're kind of wavering a little bit. So I'm just going to ask you, like, 
So do you think that somebody can be for Ethereum plus also at the same time experiment with other chains? Or do you think that's not possible? I started having open relationships recently. Wait, you mean like <laughs> in your personal life or do you, yeah, or do like you mean for, with your blockchain life? Oh, okay. No, like, and I think, it, I think it's opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, I think maybe we should decentralize relationships in general, but I think this kind of experimentation is fine. I think that obviously if you're, you know, more on one side than another, like you shouldn't expect to, you know, be in a sort of management role in, in the other uh, side. So like, I don't know what Ryan, Ryan hasn't like, you know, stepped down or something as a mod given that he's far more a polka dot maximalist than an ethereum maximalist and and i think maximalism is sort of like a term that people use to describe like the incumbent now it's sort of like lost all meaning uh like it's supposed to describe the like fanatical you know f- like far end of the spectrum um but it's basically being used to describe anybody that uh prefers one chain over another so i don't think that uh there's anything wrong with you know, using other technology at the end of the day, like most of the reason that I started building on Ethereum was because I could write smart contracts on it. Uh, and then what kept me here and, and what made me fall in love with it is that the community is, is amazing and the, the culture is, you know, incredible and, and it's really hard to replicate anywhere else. If Ethereum 2.0 fails, what do you think the reason will have been? So a couple things like one, uh, ETH 2.0 could fail if ETH drops precipitously and everybody runs out of money, ETH 2.0 could fail if there's coordination problems and it gets delayed longer and longer and then people get discouraged. Uh, it could get, it could fail because of scope creep. So like tra- people trying to jam too many things in, into a release and not underestimating, underestimating the complexity of doing so. Um, I think, I don't think it's likely that ETH 2.0 will fail. Uh, I think that everybody working on it is super committed to seeing it through. And collectively, we do have the resources to see it through. It's just that the timeline's a little long for for my personal liking. Um, and is there any way that you think the Ethereum roadmap should be changed so that Ethereum is less likely to lose its lead? Uh, I, I think that there there are, but they're not obvious to me right now. Um, so it's more of like a wait and see. I think like the beacon chain is, is pretty much the focus right now. And it is enough of a bedrock that it needs to happen no matter what. Maybe that's kind of like stage one of the three step roadmap to Ethereum 2.0. Exactly. It's like the first of the three stages, which are called phase zero, one and two, uh, because people like to start with zero in this in this space <laughs> so yeah phase zero it should be you know it's test nets are are up right now and uh should be up before the end of the year and the plan is that phase one should be out by the end of the year uh, the next year 2020 and then phase two would be out the year after that i don't think it sh- will take that long i think with better coordination we'll be able to do it much faster like oh, really faster. even though so far everything has been delayed yeah i think like two years is a good target not three <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll see how it all plays out and we'll we'll definitely see what happens with Molly Dow. Hopefully it won't see the same fate as the Dow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I spent a lot of nights writing tests just like like please don't be Stefan Twelve. Like please don't be Stefan Twelve. Uh and you know who, who created the Dow or was right. not the creator, but I guess one of the Yeah, I don't know leaders. What he's up to now, but like yeah. <laughs> He went through some ish. (laughs) 
So, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, this has been a fabulous discussion. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people learn more about you and Malik Dow? Uh, com is the website that just went up and we're on Twitter at Malik Dow. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks for coming on Unchained. Cheers. Thanks for having me, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Amin and Malik Dow, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you don't have tickets to the first Unchained Live, don't forget to tune in Wednesday, March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern on facebook.com slash Unchained Podcast to catch the live stream of my interview with Vitalik Buterin, creator of Ethereum. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Galapali, Fractional Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.